Thanks for joining us here at Fully Yours, our cross-country conversation where three friends share their latest adventures with food to reflect on the themes of everyday life. The matters of the heart. We are fully yours because at the end of the day, food shows us just how truly, fully, we belong to one another. Hi, this is Chloe. And this is Eva. And we're here today to share episode three of our season five with you. And Christy, our other co-host, also says hello. She is doing some organizing right now to try to navigate through these times, so is not able to be with us, but is here in spirit. We're so glad that you've joined us again today at this virtual table as we continue to dive deeply into topics around land and race and how all of those things show up in our food system. Last episode, Eva, you helped us explore a little bit more fully some of the origins around land and race relationships, particularly um, between white and black folks in the history of the United States. And today we wanted to, recognizing that all three of us as co-hosts are in different parts of the country, we wanted to um, zoom in a little bit to, to continue this narrative in our individual geographies. So I'm, I'm located out in California. And I'm in Arkansas. Yeah. And so how, how was it for you to kind of look into the history of land and race in your area? Hmm. That's a really good question. It was, um, in some ways, particularly after preparing for the last episode, some things I found were not super surprising, but it was also, um, it was really help- helpful to be able to put that whole conversation of land more in context with how that affects what's going on today for so many communities. Mm-hmm. I did find an article that went more deeply into kind of land theft histories and found some things in there related to Arkansas that were really surprising and I'll share those a little bit later but it was it was definitely convicting. I feel similarly being out here in California which has such a huge agricultural presence in the country at currently I tried to kind of dig into how agriculture is related to farm labor practices um in, in California's history. And this is sort of a topic I think we'll be going into further later on in a different episode. But yeah, just finding as I kind of tried to discover what some of the patterns were, I felt like it was just really scratching the surface that helped me realize the complexity and how many different groups, how many different ethnicities and races have been kind of utilized by the the white settlers in in California's area to produce cheap labor mm-hmm. and how that's impacted those communities and even the relationships among those communities. So, yeah, it was definitely a helpful expansion of what we began to talk about last last episode. And I just wanted to to start us off with just to kind of help bridge from last episode to to start off with a couple of words from Eric Holt Jimenez. He wrote an article called Agrarian Questions and the Struggle for Land Justice in the United States and really does a pretty incredible job trying to capture the fullness uh, in broad strokes of history of how relationship between 
land and communities and the economy has unfolded in the United States. And just two things that I thought were really powerful that that he points out. He says, oh, and sorry, I should say that this is in, I believe it's in the, the introduction to the book Land Justice, Reimagining Land Food and the Commons in the United States. So he says that the politics of food is never far from the politics of land, water, or labor. Changing the food system without changing the systems of land access, land tenure, and land use is not only unlikely, it may well be impossible. I thought that was really powerful and helpful in kind of connecting these different areas that threads that we've been trying to pull at that when we talk about food today in the United States, it's necessary to take a step back and to look at land access and then the the labor that is the labor practices that are used and the people that are involved in all of those processes and who those systems are benefiting and who is experiencing hardship and in some cases extreme violence due to those systems the other thing that he points out and this was kind of the bridge from the last episode he states slavery indentured servitude and genocidal dispossession laid the foundation for the emergence of capitalist agriculture, a new form of production and consumption that emerged in the transition from agrarian to industrial society in the United States. And that's really true. When you look at how the, the colonies were formed and how the United States began to build its economic foundation on the use of slave labor on lands that had been taken from indigenous people stolen and that sort of laid the the foundation and the premises for how agricultural would unfold and I think those even sort of connecting how that history well, you could, here we go with scratching the surface, right? <laughs> you can connect that back to how land and labor was practiced in Europe before colonization. And mm-hmm. so what was coming over from that legacy and the the hierarchies and the inequalities that, that were kind of coming over and then this expectation that was created that labor should be free, based on these really inhumane slavery practices that were used. And then this continuation even after the end, the official end of of slavery per se, but then you just have this continuation of expectation around cheap labor and sometimes still different forms of of free labor that is continues to be used. Yeah. This is a little bit this might sound a little bit simplistic, but just something that just popped in my head is I think doing some of this research and having this conversation is another reminder for me as someone who's white that it it just does such a disservice to continue to argue that racism is this very personal, um, you know, saying like offensive things or kind of surface level interactions, not that those aren't also forms of racism and aren't worthy of our attention, but just how it's just baked into the whole machine and it has been for centuries and how many decisions were made along the way that even if they were invisible or even if they were unintentional, they caused real harm to human beings. 
because it's so easy to be it's so easy to be disconnected from those systems and I think about like even just going to the grocery store and buying you know you can buy fresh berries all year that are most likely harvested from people who if they're not treated as slaves they're pretty darn close to it and so anyway that's just that's just kind of where I've where I've been with all of this is like it's so complex and and so important for us to keep peeling away those layers and to try and live in ways that that undo some of that harm. Right. I think I think that's so. <laughs> Sorry. Background. Hey, Hera. Jingles. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you, Eva. I think that's so real. And I know that there's, um, you know, we're living in this moment in our country. This has probably been a huge part of, uh, maybe it's always been this way, but it certainly feels like sort of these conversations around basic human rights and the prevalence of racism and how how to try to to reckon with that is so politicized. And I, I'm just always really struck by when you look at the numbers. I mean, it's it's just pretty obvious. <laughs> like, yep. I I say that recognizing also that as a white person I have my own moments of resistance and and pushing back because it's not the reality and the lens that I live my life through and so Mm. it's very easy to to try to create those caveats and which can be really damaging but I was I think you mentioned something like this in the last episode and it came up also when I was looking at California it was oh goodness you know I don't know if this is Oh, yeah, this is related just to California. So the statistics were over 60% of California's total farm revenue is generated by 2% of farms. Like, that's wow. nuts. And then the majority of, it's it goes on, this article says the majority of farm acres are owned by white farmers. Yet the farm workers are Latinx folks and other people of color. And it says farmers of color make up approximately 21% of farmers in California and receive, like you had mentioned last episode, have more barriers to access to government support than white farmers. So that was coming out of um, an article that we'll link in the show notes. But that's just so statistically, it's so, I think it helps point us to the structural ways that this continues to persist so i yeah i appreciate you saying that yeah what are what are you seeing in arkansas right now Hmm, yeah it's actually a good good segue very related to what we're already sharing but similar to what we were saying in the last episode and i know we keep referencing the last episode (laughs) but encourage people to listen to it who haven't because it does provide a little bit of a a backdrop for for what we're talking about today but you know black and brown people in the U.S. have been deprived of or they've been cut off from again even if if unintentionally the ability to own and have agency over their own land um, and how this shows up in really deeply entrenched systems and when I was looking at uh, at Arkansas and the American South I stumbled on this article that the Atlantic put together, which is really, really well done and recommended. And we'll put that in the show notes, but it's called The Great Land Robbery and really highlighting some of these histories of um, land theft in the United States and the the theft of land, particularly 
of black and brown communities. And I, I found a section that was talking about the TIAA pension firm, um, which is a firm that I am connected to. Um, I receive a TIAA pension through my workplace. It's one of the largest in the States and a lot of people who work in higher ed spaces, which is the context where I work. A lot of teachers, folks in those worlds are have TIAA accounts. But it talked about how, I'll just quote a little bit here, it says, TIAA has a portfolio of more than 80,000 acres of land in Mississippi. And if you include the Fertile Crescent of Arkansas, TIAA holds more than 130,000 acres in a strip of counties along the Mississippi River. Wow. And directly related to that is this reality that black farmers and black people in particular have been uprooted from these places as laborers or as property owners. I really appreciated this section that drove it home. They said, um, this is not necessarily a story about TIAA alone, or at least not primarily, but the company's dominance in the region is the topsoil covering a history of loss and legally sanctioned theft in which TIAA played no part. But TIAA's position is instrumental in how we understand the crimes of Jim Crow and how those histories and those legacies have become a structured part of American life. And so this this was really what I was getting at with this. The word I keep getting at is just entrenched and ingrained. It's just so, um, we don't often think about how our lives are so connected to these huge companies and corporations that have connections and that are making decisions, even if in an interest of saving money or what have you, that continue to do harm to communities and how, how that affects, it affects the land. Mm. So that was just a, I did not expect Arkansas and TIAA to come up when I was doing this Mm -hmm. research about about land um, and race in in the South. So that was something that really surprised me. And and I think related to that, that history and those ongoing legacies continue to show up in, in current realities too. I mean, Arkansas is a pretty big ag state. We have Tyson based here and a lot of Tyson workers live in northwest Arkansas where it's based and there's been huge swaths of poultry plant workers who have been diagnosed with COVID and who've you know it's been spreading throughout those plants and they're often the least protected people. I mean a lot of them are undocumented workers particularly Latinx communities and then also we have a large community of Marshallese living in northwest Arkansas. And just even more generally speaking, Arkansas has some of the highest levels of food insecurity. And a lot of that has to do with these deep histories of the land and who has access to thriving on that land. So it's really, it's everywhere. And I wish I had some examples to share sort of with how people are trying to reckon with this because it is happening. People trying to repair, but there's also just so much that your average Arkansan doesn't necessarily know about these things or isn't being taught this history. So it's, it's very sobering. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That connection you made between kind of historical trends and then the current situation in the face of COVID is really helpful. And that's, that, that was something I was trying to explore a little bit as over these last couple of years, especially with the current administration really inciting a lot of 
bias and anger towards immigrant workers, especially those from Central America and Mexico. Um, so I was trying to, there, there is a large, there's, I mean, again, kind of with California being the, the vegetable and fruit provider right now, um, among other states, of course, but wanted to dig a little bit into better understanding around immigration and how deeply linked that is with agricultural production in particular and and supply and demand and it was really interesting again I just feel like this stuff is so extensive um I will not be doing it justice but I uh, just wanted to briefly briefly highlight some of a little bit of the history because I think it's so deeply related to our conversations about immigration, particularly from south of the U.S. border and just how heated that conversation has become. So I was looking back at the Bracero program, which um, I do not think was limited at all. It, it was not to um, immigration into California in particular. It was, it was other states as well, but certainly had a big impact in California. And so the Bracero program was an agreement between the United States and Mexico. And I guess it, it originated in from 1917 to 21 and actually uh, due to the, as far as what I could find due to kind of the working conditions that were available for for Mexican immigrants that would come up to provide labor in, in different industries. Um, I think there was some resistance from the Mexican government to enter back into any sort of agreement, but the Bracero program was restarted in 1942 because of World War II. And that was so interesting how, yeah, gosh, just the big picture, right? So in 1942, the U.S. entered into into World War II and sent, I think they said, um, eventually about 16 million people were sent to war. So that created a labor shortage and the United States was dependent on bringing in labor, bringing in people to help continue to produce goods like food. But the other really striking piece was in California, that was the time of internment camps for Japanese Americans and um, Japanese communities have been a huge part of the agricultural scene in California's history, along with several other different immigrant groups as well. But because Japanese immigrants were being interned, Mexicans were Mexican immigrants were being brought into the the state to to basically provide uh, labor. So this. This program actually continued past the war into, up until 1964 when it started to get a lot of um, critique and pushback because the conditions of the camps that were overseen by the government where farm workers would live were pretty, were not good. So the interesting side story accompanying all of this was that throughout this this almost 20, 22 year period of the Bracero program, there was ongoing efforts by farmers to bring in undocumented workers or essentially Mexican immigrants who were not officially coming through the Bracero program because it was cheaper. 
And so there's just this history of how the government tried to respond to that. And at one point, the government almost rewarded it in a sense by by once once people were here through back channels by granting them to be a part of the Bracero program, which I'm sure had its its benefits and its costs. And then at another time, the government tried to begin basically sanctioning the farmers who were hiring these people by kind of imposing uh, fees and that sort of thing. And that actually got turned down in Congress. So essentially, uh, farmers could continue to hire people in ways that were even less supportive of the workers, even though those folks who came through the Bracero program, it, it seems like, did not have great living conditions or pay. So again, I'm sure it's a lot more <laughs> complex than I'm describing it. Um, I could be getting some things wrong in there, but I just was really struck by this complex history. And then out of that, in the the 60s in particular, you start to see um, organizing among farm workers. So there's this really interesting kind of cross-cultural effort that was described where Cesar Chavez originally was was helping or was participating in efforts being organized by Filipino Americans who were being paid less than Bracero workers. And then out of that, yeah, you just had more and more organizing and the the development of union or sorry, United Farm Workers that came out of that to help provide a little bit of leverage for working conditions for farmers. So that's that's just a snapshot, but I I thought that was really um Connecting that with what we read earlier about how, again, if the, if the country and its economy, especially around agriculture and land access, if you just remember that it's based on dispossession of, I think it's almost 1.5 billion acres of land. Let me see if I have that right. From indigenous groups and then upon slavery, which... By no means in human costs was that free, but in economic terms, it was free labor. It's just really powerful to see how that continues to ripple through our relationship with how much we pay for food and what workers' conditions are like. Yeah. Yeah, it really, oh, it's just so much, but it it really um, highlights that what you're just naming about this conversation about cost is we may not be paying the cost in our dollars but what a cost to what a cost to human life and just what I'm just so in what you've shared just what a collection of forces that have kept the system going and yeah it's 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 really helpful for me to understand more about some of those agreements between countries and and the impact of World War II as well on kind of where not that it started there but where some of that at least in the United States talking about migrant farm workers where a lot of um, not legal systems but a lot of policies came into place to reinforce the need for cheap labor yeah and I I do think like you were showing with the the example with Tyson how you know we find ourselves here in 2020 and for any listeners who well goodness no anyone really who's listening in the world right it's a global pandemic so but I think that I I really do believe that some of the 
heartache and, and pain that our world is experiencing right now, I think it's I think it's very related to these larger histories, which might seem a little overwhelming, but I think it also by just trying to delve a little bit deeper into understanding things, I think it does give us better understanding of ways of moving forward by trying to kind of root us in in a future vision that's that looks different from where we were in 2019, right? I'm in California right now and there we were just talking about this but there were we're living in extreme fire right now. And from this podcast and from our readings uh, about water use in California and kind of different, yeah, just about the the landscape and the geography and um, learning a little bit more about indigenous people's relationship to the land in California prior to the colonization of European settlers. It's helped me better understand that fires are part of the landscape here, but it's also helped me kind of appreciate that the the form of community that we create on the land here I, I think is really exacerbating what the what the land can hold and so yes fire is a part of California and I don't think that this extent of fires is what would be experienced if we understood things differently and practiced relationship with the land differently so something that i know this is a lot probably um but something that we have been doing in our episodes is trying to do a ritual and also an action for everyone because because when we get kind of back into these these stories it can feel like so where do we go from here and um, I certainly don't have the answers about where to go from here but I think there are many people out there who are embodying different ways of being that we can recognize and learn from and support and in particular people of color who continue to offer really vibrant models of interacting with the land and with each other. So for today's ritual, we just invite you to the next time that you sit down with an apple or a raspberry or a banana or whatever um, fruit or vegetable that you're eating, we invite you to pause and close your eyes for about a minute. To take a few deep breaths and allow yourself to center wherever you're sitting or standing. Observing the, the piece of produce that you might have in your hands with your touch, with your smell. And then allowing in your imagination images to come up of the very many people who have brought that produce to you. And just recognizing what those people look like. 
Where do they come from? What languages do they speak? What conditions do they face? What privilege do they have? Did they harvest this produce in the smoke of the wildfires? What might be their joys, their greatest prides? What might their families be like? And to offer gratitude to those people. And then maybe in the next two weeks, taking that a step further by by trying something, by taking some action. We encourage you to, whether you go onto our show notes and look at one of the articles that we post or just doing a search on your computer at home, if you have one, looking um, or with a book at the library, trying to gain a little bit better understanding of maybe what situations, working conditions, history might be like, either where you find yourself, where you're living, or where that piece of produce came from. Because I imagine there's probably many of us who, if we're eating a banana, it wasn't grown in our neighborhood. And my hope is that 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 little bit of extra understanding can maybe then inform our conversations with each other, can maybe inform a little bit more of our practices as consumers and the power that we leverage with our money, and can maybe inform how we participate in the upcoming election in whatever way that is, informing how we learn about the issues, what issues we pay attention to, how we show up to vote, that we show up to vote, and that we work to ensure that others are given the right and the privilege to vote as well. Thank you for grappling with hard realities with us, and we hope this invitation to go deeper in your own life and in your communities is one that not only helps you be more honest, but also helps ground you in what might be possible And that that possibility might actually give you a source of hope. Thank you, Chloe. I loved that beautiful ritual and, yeah, just so powerful. Eva, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Wishing all of you a good few weeks, and we'll see you at the table again soon. Huge thanks to our dream team for keeping us grounded and inspired, including Steve Dry and the Entrepreneur League based in Cambridge, Massachusetts for their input and support of our podcast. Shout out to Melody Stanford Martin for our gorgeous logo design. And many thanks to you, our listeners. If you like what you hear, be sure to check out our website at fullyyourspodcast.com for even more recipes, writings, and resources. Drop us a line. We love hearing from you. 
and leave us a review on iTunes. It really means a lot. Until next time, we are fully yours.